So we have been, uh, you know, one of the things that we do here at Calvary is that we take books of the Bible and we study through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And we've been working our way through the book of Acts. It's called the Acts of the Apostles because it covers the time period from when Jesus goes back to heaven after he's died on the cross, raised from the dead, ascends to heaven for the next 35 years or so. And what it does is it gives us a a peek into the history and the theology of the early church, what they did and and, uh, what was so important, what they believed. And so I've told you when we started this that this was going to be a fast book and uh, we were going to go one chapter a week. And when I said that, I meant it. But it just wasn't true. And (laughs) And this week is going to be one of those weeks. We're going to go halfway through this chapter and pick it up next week. And, and you know, as we get into the book of Acts, one of the things that, that I'm finding, and uh, hopefully you are too, is that if you're like me, I come from a, a very church background. God's allowed me to be in a number of different places. And uh, I love the book of Acts because no matter what background of church you come from, it's going to challenge some of your presuppositions, some of the conclusions that you've had about who God is and what it is that he wants to do. And we're going to see that today. And I think you're going to find it very interesting. And, you know, I was sharing with Pastor Doug, we were having a conversation with the the pastors and... um, one of the things that we said is that we all appreciate our seminary experience. I had a wonderful time in seminary, wonderful church background and, 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 and all, but what, what we came to realize is that many times in seminary you learn all the stuff that doesn't really matter to the, the person in the street, you know, the person in the, the seat, I would say. And so we, we had terms like superlapsarianism. How many of you are familiar with the term superlapsarianism? Yeah, you don't need to be because it's not going to change your life. But those are the things that, that we learned. And um, what I have come to the place is like, those are great. I need to know those things. But I like to talk about the things that will change our life because Jesus was all about changing people's life. And he gave the Holy Spirit so that we could be changed. So we're going to talk about that today as we go through. We're going to see some things and hopefully we can set aside some of our denominational background, maybe some of our baggage, and look at what the Bible actually says. And even if it makes us a little bit uncomfortable, maybe we'll, we'll learn some things. So as we go through one of the things that we've mentioned there in the top of your outline, you want to have your Bible, your outline, and uh, your uh, pen ready to go. But Acts chapters 1 and 2 <clears throat> took place in 30 AD. Jesus goes back to heaven. He's died on the cross, raised from the dead. The Holy Spirit is given, and that was in 30 AD. Now, by the time we get to Acts chapter 8, it's going to cover a time period of about 35 AD through 36 AD. This is going to be a time period that takes place. We left off last week in chapter 7, and there is the first martyr of the church, and his name was Stephen, or Stephen, however your Bible would say that. So in chapter 7, verse 58, if you just go up a couple of verses from chapter 8, it says, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside, laid, laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, uh, his name was Saul. That was his Hebrew name. At this point, he's not a believer. Later on, he will become a believer, and we will know him as Paul. But at this point in the story of Acts, he's, he's a, a persecutor of the church. So then you come to chapter 8, verse 1. Now keep in mind that the Bible was not written with chapters and verses. That was added a thousand years later. 
So I could say turn to chapter 8, verse 1, and we'd all go to the same place. But it wasn't written, that it was just written. And so they inserted that a thousand years later. So the story continues. Chapter 8, it says, Now Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That's Stephen who just got stoned to death in chapter 7. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. Now you want to keep in mind, there's only one church at this time, and it's in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered. I've underlined scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And I've underlined Samaria, except the apostles, except the apostles. So you will remember when we first started in the book of Acts, Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, tells the disciples that very soon you're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We would call that the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he said this in Acts chapter 1. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, underline that, even to the remotest parts of the earth. So we talked about how the empowering of the Holy Spirit would be given, and God empowers us to be witnesses for Him. That is, that we can carry on, uh, carry out what it is that God's called us to do. So when we look at the dating, it's been more than five years since Jesus has said that. He's gone back to heaven, the Holy Spirit has been given. Five years has passed, and and, uh, what we find is that at this point, nobody has left Jerusalem. So nobody's gone through Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. They've all stayed there in Jerusalem. But now that persecution begins, everyone is scattered except for the apostles. Verse 2, now Stephen has been stoned, and again, we talked about it last week, but the story just continues. Verse 2, some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. When Stephen was stoned, and we looked at that last week, this was by the religious leadership. So these devout men who come to carry away his body would not be people from the church, the Christians, because he's just been killed. If they show up, they're pretty sure that they're, they're going to be killed too. So these devout men would be Jewish people who are not believers in Jesus. They're just Jewish people. But they are apparently looking on at what the religious leadership has done, and they are horrified that their people would do something like that. And so they come and they give Stephen, Stephen a, a, a burial, and, uh, but this tells us that although the religious leadership was hostile to the church, it doesn't mean that the people were hostile. And so even in Acts it says the people held them in very high esteem. So these would be religious people, uh, these would be Jewish people coming and doing that for Stephen, probably horrified at what's taken place. Verse 3, but Saul began ravaging the church. Now we know him as Saul here, that's his Jewish name. Later on we will know him as Paul, that will be his Roman name when he becomes a believer in chapter 9. When Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. Men and women, I've underlined that. He would put them into prison. When it would, if it were to just say he would be coming and taking the head of the household, you know, the men into prison, everybody's okay. But the fact that he would be carrying off men and women would be horrifying to the reader 2,000 years ago. That this is how much he hated men and women taking them to prison. And you can imagine as, as the children would see this and they're screaming their fear as their parents are dragged off to prison. 
So what we're going to see is in chapter 9, Paul's going to become a believer. He's going to have an encounter with Jesus, and we're going to find out how personal Jesus takes this, that Paul would do that to uh, those who belong to Jesus. We'll talk about that in chapter 9. But in verse 4, it says, Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. So here it tells us, and you want to write this down, that God uses persecution to get the church moving. It's been five years and nobody has left Jerusalem. And so next week we'll take a few minutes and we'll talk about how sometimes some things that God uses in our life to get us going. Sometimes ease isn't the thing that God uses to get us going. But we also see, it says that some, the the, the church pretty much scatters, the apostles stay there in Jerusalem. And so what we're going to see, and you want to write this down, that some fled and some stayed, but God used both. It was not a cookie-cutter method here. Those who fled were just doing what Jesus said to do. Jesus would say there in your outline, but whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. Sometimes persecution is just God's way of saying, it's time to move on. It's time to move on. You don't have to stay in the place of persecution. And uh, that can be not just what they were going through, but every once in a while somebody will come to me and they'll say, you know, I'm, I'm in this job situation. I'm the only Christian. Everybody hates me. Everybody makes fun of me. And uh, they, they do things, they say things, and, and I'm sure, should I stay? And, and my position is always, you know, you, you have to decide, is God calling you to stay or is he calling you to go if there's that type of persecution? Jesus would say, do not throw your pearls before swine and, and, uh, and give what is holy to dogs. Is that how he said it? Did I get that right? And the, the, the idea, or did I reverse it? Well, you don't know. So I'm just going <laughs> to I'm just going to keep going as though I was right, okay? So, so but the idea is, is that sometimes it's just time to, to go. Don't stay in that situation. So they realize that it's time for them to go. So, all right, so then we come to verse 5, and this is where the plot begins to thicken. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Now, many are scattered. There are many stories. We're going to look at today of one story, and it's going to be the story of Philip in Samaria. So what I wanted to do is put a map up on the screen. You're very familiar with this. Israel is divided into three sections at least 2,000 years ago. In the northern part, you have the area called Galilee, and there is this very large freshwater lake that they called the Sea of Galilee. Jesus' ministry was primarily in the northern part of Israel, in the Galilee, the area of the Galilee. That's where he chose his disciples. His disciples lived up in the north. They had businesses in the north. They had family in the north. But then you come all the way down to the bottom of Israel, and you have this area called Judea. Now, Judea, the southern part, is where the city of Jerusalem is. And so what was interesting, as we talked about, is that Jesus will call his disciples away from the place where they had income, they had businesses, they had family, they had relationships, and he calls them down to Jerusalem. He wants to do something, have them learn to trust him there. It's also going to be the place of of persecution against the church. So it's going to be a time of difficulty for them. So you have Galilee in the north, and then you have the Judea or Jerusalem in the south, but in the middle of Israel, you have this area called Samaria. 
Now Samaria is where the Samaritans live. And there was a great deal of hostility between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And the reason for that is about 600 years before Jesus is born, there was in this middle part of Israel, everybody was Jewish. But they were invaded by the Assyrians, not in the north, not in the south so much, but right there in the middle. The Assyrians came in and they carted off the wealthy Jewish people and uh, took them to Assyria. And not Syrians, but Assyrians, very, very, very different. And what they did was the Assyrians took out the wealthy Jewish people, but then they sent in Assyrians to live in this area. Well, over time, as the two cultures began to mix, uh, Assyrians and Jewish people began to get married. So what we find is that the Samaritans are this mixture between Assyrians and Jewish people. So there on your outline you want to write down Samaritans were half Jewish and half Assyrian. Now there was two races coming together, but that wasn't the problem. The problem wasn't that there was two races. The problem was that there were two religions. So you want to write down the problem wasn't a mixed race, but a mixed religion because they had very different belief systems, which is why in the Old Testament Moses would write, he'd say, neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter uh, shalt not be given to his son, nor his daughter shalt not be given to thy son. And the idea is that when you encounter people of another faith, you don't marry them. Because when you do that, it always mixes the two and it leads to a very watered down belief system in the children. Our counseling is filled with, with people who a believer who marries a non-believer, and it always creates a great deal of, of frustration in the next generation. And so we always counsel, just like the Bible says, believers marry believers. And so you always want to make sure on that. But the Samaritans, because they were half Jewish, they believed in the God of the Bible. And so in their faith, they believed in what was called the Pentateuch or the Torah. That was the first five books of the Bible. And yet what we find is that, and we'll see in in a, a little bit, that they had mixed some of the beliefs of the Assyrians. So they believed in the first five books of the Bible, but they also had some other beliefs that the Bible said you're not to have anything to do with that. We'll see that as we go. So the Jewish people, not because they were a different race, hated the Samaritans, but because they had mixed Judaism, belief in the God of the Bible, with some other beliefs. And so that was anathema to them. So by and large, the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. And this prejudice was so deep, it was even among the disciples. You'll remember the time that Jesus is traveling through and he did something that Jewish guys didn't typically do. Most Jewish people would go around Samaria, but Jesus would go through Samaria. And one time he's going through, and this will be important for our study there in your outline, they went and entered a village of the Samaritans. And this is Jesus and the disciples, but they did not receive him. Now when the disciples, James and John, you want to underline John, this is going to be important, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Uh, That's how they felt among the Samaritans. And it's a great story to read because you get the picture that as John is doing this, Jesus is like, how long? How long? You guys are just totally missing it. And uh, so that'll be important for our study. That was John who did that. So keep that in mind. So when Jesus would be in a group 
of Jewish people, and he would tell a story like the Good Samaritan, uh, that would be very irritating to the Jewish people because they enjoyed their prejudices against anybody who was not like them. So Jesus has said, <clears throat> go ye into all the world, you know, go to Judea, Samaria, and, and it's now five years after Jesus has gone back to heaven, and up to this point until this chapter, nobody has left. Nobody has, has left Jerusalem. We don't know what town Philip went to in Samaria. There was a bunch of towns. But what we do know it was a very smart move for Philip because if persecution is beginning in Jerusalem to the point where believers are being killed, we're only told the story of one, but there were others and we'll see in the other parts of the Bible. If believers are being killed, where is the safest place for you to go to flee persecution from the religious leadership? Well, it'd be up in Samaria because they don't want to go up into Samaria because they think they'd become unclean and they also know that the hatred was so great if they go up there they're probably going to get killed. So the idea is that was the best place for Philip to go. So Philip goes up to Samaria and as he's there it says, verse 6, it says, the crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip. And when they heard and saw the signs now in my Bible there's a little one next to that and it points to the margin and it says attesting miracles because that's what it means. When they saw, they heard and saw the signs which he was performing for in the case of many who had unclean spirits they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. Many were, were healed. To the Jewish reader the Samaritans would have been considered the least likely that God would want to send his gospel or his spirit to. But what we find is that when Philip shows up to the ones that would be considered the least likely, you want to write this down, the least likely were spiritually hungry. And they're listening. They, they want to find out what this is all about. And then what we see in verse 7, it says, for in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. I've underlined that word, healing. So there it says that some who had spiritual influences, demonic influences, they were coming out and there was screaming, and those who had been lame or paralyzed, they were being healed. So here's what we find throughout the book of Acts. Go ahead and write this down. Sickness can have a physical or spiritual source. And so it's not always a demon, and it's not always physical. And so sometimes discerning a little bit uh, goes a long way. But regardless of the source, whether it was spiritual or it was physical, what we see in this little passage here is that God's desire is healing. And you want to write that down. Now Philip is the second person who's not an apostle, who's going out and God is using him to perform miracles. And there in your outline I put that verse, I've actually blended seven and eight, says they were healed. And uh, that word, therapio, therapio, from, and there was much rejoicing. So they were healed, the word there, therapio, is the Greek word for where we get our English word, therapy. Now this word implies, doesn't have to, but it implies that this healing was a process. When you think of the word therapy in English, you don't think of something instantaneous, but 
over time, healing was taking place. And you'll see that in several places in the New Testament. Sometimes God heals instantaneously, and sometimes God uses a process in order to bring healing. But Philip is being used at this point to reveal God's heart, his desire for his people, and those, we would say, who would be considered, at least in their mind, the least likely, but God wanted to heal even them. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, you find that God's heart is always for healing. You don't find that God is sending sickness on his and his family believers who are following him. That's not something that you find in the Bible. And so uh, just notice in the Old Testament, if I were to read one verse, Psalm 103, it says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. Which makes us say, what in the world would be one of the benefits uh, that would be from, from God or believing in him or following him? Well, here they are. Verse 3, it goes on to say, who pardons all your iniquities and who heals all your diseases. So would you, as a good Bible-believing New Testament Christian, would you believe that it's always God's will to pardon your iniquities, your sins? Absolutely. You would believe that. That's why we're here. We believe that God wants to, to, to pardon our iniquities and our sins, and he's certainly done that. Well, then would you at the same time when he tells us not to forget one of his benefits, one of those benefits would be to pardon all of our iniquities, and then he says, and who heals all your diseases. Then then could we also conclude that it would be God's desire that we would receive healing for all of our diseases? That's where you say yes, because it is. You find that throughout the New Testament. Philip here believes as he goes that God wants to heal. And so apparently part of his message is going to deal with healing. There's going to be spiritual healing. There's going to be physical healing. And that's just part of it. The people also, based upon whatever it is that Philip is telling them, they are believing that God wants to heal because they're bringing people to be healed and they're seeing healing take place. And I would suggest that the first step to receiving healing from the Lord is coming to the place where you realize that he wants to heal you. Some of us come from a denominational background where we attribute to God the things that Jesus said Satan does. Jesus would say, I come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. But Satan comes to kill, to rob, and to destroy. But some people would say, well, well, God sent this disease upon me. Wait a minute, Jesus says that's what Satan does. God doesn't do that. God's desire is always for healing. So we'll see that throughout the book of Acts, throughout the book of Acts. So if I could just take a, a, a moment here and talk about healing, and, and uh, maybe there are some here who, who need to be healed Uh, the first step is always coming to the place where you recognize that God's desire is for your healing. And and there on your outline, when you believe that that God wants to heal, you, you need to agree with God. Amos would say it like this, can two walk together except they be agreed? 
So the way that you walk forward in agreement with God is you say the same thing about your situation that God is saying. I would never deny if my doctor came in and says, you know, we've seen the report and uh, the report's not good and you have this disease. I would not walk around saying, I don't have that disease, I don't have that disease, I don't have that disease. I'm not denying what anybody has said. And I would do whatever my doctor said and I would take medicine. I would take medicine. So I wouldn't be denying what it is that the doctor said. And what I love about doctors and why we love doctors so much here at Calvary is because doctors believe, doctors believe that it's God's will for you to be healed. And that's what they do. That's why you've never had a situation where the doctor comes in, you know, doctors don't believe that it's God's will for you to be sick and, you know, to ultimately, you know, end in that way. So you've never had a doctor come in and say, well, we got the lab report, it's cancer, and uh, I guess it's just God's will, you're going to die. Oh, well, good luck with that, bye-bye. They never say that. They say, here's what the report says, now here's what we're going to do about it, because they believe that God wants you healed. Does that make sense? So, so, so we, we, we certainly appreciate that, and they believe that. But here's what I would add to that. I would say, I would go to what God says about my situation. So for instance, in the Old Testament. Now, these are all Old Testament verses. Exodus 15, God says, I am the Lord that healeth thee. And so I would say, you're the Lord that heals me. I wouldn't deny that I have it. I just you're the Lord that heals me. It says in Psalm 103, you're the Lord who heals all. I'm the Lord who heals all your diseases. And I would say, you're the Lord who heals all my diseases. It says, by his wounds, we are healed. And I would say, by your wounds, I am healed. And, and I would continue to say what God says. I'm not denying what the doctor said. I'm just saying, here's what God says about my situation. I'm going to say that. I'm not going to tell the doctor, I'm not sick. I'm not doing that. I'm just going to continue to say, you're the Lord who heals all my diseases. You're the Lord, my healer. And, and I'm trusting God for healing. In Psalms, it says this, he sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. God's word and healing are together. That's the method that he uses. So faith is exercised when we begin saying about our situation what God says about our situation. So if I go around and say, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying, well, that's professing my faith in something else. I want to say, the Lord is my healer. So Hopefully that's, that's for some. Do you find that at least interesting? Good, good. So God is doing some great things here and there's a great deal of rejoicing. So verse 8, it says, so there was much rejoicing in that city. Now, or some of your Bibles will say, but on the other hand, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic, my Bible says, in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria claiming to be someone great, pointing to himself, and they all from smallest to greatest were giving attention to him. He's not pointing to God. This man is what was called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention, all about him, because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. And so I put that verse there in your outline. And just says, but there was a man called Simon who before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that he himself was someone, uh, uh, some, some great one. 
the Samaritans had wrongly assumed that because he was doing miracles, magic, that he was from God. And so one of the things that we find about the Samaritans that bothered the Jewish people so much is they had combined two different belief systems. They believed in the God of the Bible and the first five books. But there in your outline, the Samaritans mixed belief in God with magic. So for them, when the Assyrians brought in magic, they were okay with that. And they just blended the two. Well, verses 12 through 13, it says, but when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and, I've underlined the word and, the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized men and women alike. And I've underlined that, men and women alike. So Saul is arresting men and women alike and throwing them into prison. Philip, on the other hand, is bringing the gospel and men and women alike are, are coming to Jesus. So verse 13, even Simon himself believed and after being baptized he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place he was constantly amazed. Well, we're going to find, and write this down, there's going to be two parts of Philip's message and there's going to be two results. The message goes together but there's going to be two sides of this. There in your outline it says they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ and they baptized they were baptized both men and women. So the first part of Philip's message was about God's kingdom. And you want to write down that they were saved. They were saved. They were baptized. And whatever happened he believed, okay, you can be baptized now. You 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 believe. But the second part was the name of Jesus Christ it says and the name of Jesus Christ. So they were saved, and in verse 13 we notice that there are great miracles taking place. And the Simon is greatly amazed. So you want to write down the name of Jesus, and that resulted in great signs and miracles. Never be afraid to use the name of Jesus if you're a believer. In uh, our world we tend to pray about things, and the Bible they tended to say, in the name of Jesus, and they spoke to the situation. Verse 14, Now when the apostles, by the way they were right, we're not always right. Verse 14, now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and who is that? John. Remember John? Last time we saw John, he was in Samaria. What was he doing? Calling down fire. So God says, all right John, you go. He's like, "Uh, hi. So verse 14, so John, so God sends him who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For, they, for he had not yet fallen upon any of them. I love that it says he had not yet fallen upon any of them. Not it, it's Holy Spirit, it's he. And he had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. There in your outline, they were saved and baptized back in verse 12. But here they've not yet been baptized with the Holy Spirit. That takes place in verses 15 through 17 when the apostles come. Some would call that the second work of grace. Some would call that, or just the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But it happened uh, later on. Verse 18, it says, Now when Simon saw, and I've underlined the word saw, that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Something is happening and Simon sees 
when these people receive the Holy Spirit. We would say baptized in the Holy Spirit. And so you want to write down there in your outline, Simon saw something. Something is happening. It has an effect on Simon. He's going to offer money. I want to be able to do that. So there's something that he visibly saw. Verse 19, it says, here's what he says, saying, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or portion in this. Now my Bible says matter. How many of your Bibles say matter? Good, you want to underline that. How many of your Bibles say ministry? Okay, you want to underline that. We'll come back and we'll talk about that. For your heart is not right before God. Therefore repent of this wickedness of yours and pray the Lord that if possible the intention of your heart may be forgiven you for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. So Philip goes down, he preaches, they become saved, the apostles come down, lay hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit in such a way that Simon sees something. So the question is, what did Simon see? Well, if you come from a non-churched or non-charismatic background, uh, this passage, they'll typically say something like, here are people and they are receiving the Holy Spirit and nobody speaks in tongues. Have you ever heard something like that? Nobody here is speaking in tongues. Okay, uh, quite possibly that could be true. But Simon saw something and it had an impact on him. Now if you come from a charismatic background, um, Simon sees something and charismatics are quick to point out that there's a very interesting word in this little passage. In verse 21, I put it there on your outline, Peter responds to Simon and, and Peter says, you have no part or share in this ministry. Uh, some of your Bibles will say in this matter. But the word there in the original language is the word logos. Does everybody see that? And that's in every Greek manuscript. The word is logos. Because your heart is not right before God. Logos in Greek just means word. Word. So for instance, uh, a verse that we're all familiar with, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, or Logos, and the Word, Logos, was with God, and the Word, Logos, was God, and the Word, Logos, became fresh and made His dwelling among us. So that we as Christians believe that God became a man and dwelt among us. But it refers to Him as the Word, the Word. If you have a study Bible, there in verse 21, uh, where it says, in my translation, it'll say matter, but it has like a little number next to that word, something to point you. How many of you have a study Bible that points you to the margins? Okay, okay. How about in the video venue room? How many of you have that? Good, 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 good. So when you go to the margin and it tells you, when I go to the margin in my Bible, because it's the word logos, it just says, verse 21, it says literally word, literally word. Now, why is that so interesting? 
Could be. Um, so all, I would say, although our translations all say this ministry or this matter, the word there is word or logos. And so charismatic scholars would point to this and say it's very interesting that you took this word that everywhere else in the Bible and known universally as word, uh, you translated it as matter. And so they would translate this as Peter saying, you have no part in this word or these words. And that would make a lot of sense because Simon saw something happen and he wanted to pay money to get the ability to do that. Do you find that interesting? Good. How many never heard that before? Good. Three of us. Good. So verse 24, but Simon answered and said, pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that none of what you said may come upon me. Now it's important. We'll talk about this a little bit more next week, but Simon teaches us that one can believe a great deal about Jesus and not be saved. Early church documents hold that this Simon became a great opponent. He never repents, but becomes a great opponent of the gospel. We'll talk about that last week. And so verse 25, we close with, and so then when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So the idea is they'd go to these villages, might spend a week, two weeks, but many. It might have taken several months to get back. So chapter 8 takes period over the course of a year. Do you find that interesting today? Good, good. Well, let's go ahead and, and uh, close in prayer, and we'll pick that up there next week. Fathers, we wrap this up today. Our prayer is that, Lord, as we go forward and we look at your word, that you would help us to understand your true heart, and then, Lord, maybe evaluating some of our denominational background, our traditions, maybe in some cases our baggage, and that we would come to know the God of the Bible who reveals himself, even in this book of Acts, and Lord, to come to to the place where we're able to know you in a way that makes a difference in our lives, in a way that other people see, but also causes us to say, I want that God. I want that God. And so, Father, open our eyes and give us ears to hear and eyes to see as we go. I pray, God, that you keep each and every one of us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.